following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, let's talk about Melchizedek. So I subtitled this sermon, the section that everyone skips. I'm not going to do a poll, but I'm guessing if I would ask you, have you spent a lot of time in Hebrews and Melchizedek? I'm going to guess the general answer is no. And that's going to put you and me in the same boat. Because it's just, it's almost two chapters in Hebrews about this dude named Melchizedek. But it can be a little odd to read because Melchizedek was clearly a big deal to this audience, but we're not entirely sure why. So we're going to talk about Melchizedek this morning. And in order to do that, we need to read the section about Melchizedek. So this is going to be a chunk of Bible here to start off. I'm just going to read through it with only a few comments interspersed, and then when we're done, we're going to take a big picture look at who Melchizedek was, why he was so important to the original audience of Hebrews, and what the implications are for our lives today. So here we go. We're starting in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. In the book of Genesis, we read about when Melchizedek, the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he returned from defeating uh, king and his allies. Melchizedek blessed our ancestor, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything captured in the Bible. Side note, the first time that a tenth is attached to kind of what we would refer to as a tithe. Let's look more closely at Melchizedek. First, his name means king of righteousness, and his title, king of Salem, means king of peace. The scriptures don't name his mother or father or descendants, and they don't record his birth or death. We could say he's like the son of God, eternal, a priest forever. Another side note, I don't think the author was intending to suggest that Melchizedek was an eternal being like Jesus. Now, there's lots of discussion as people try to figure out who Melchizedek is. Was he one of Noah's sons? Was he like an early, uh, early way of Jesus appearing to people? The, the Bible doesn't say. It's just speculation. The writer just notes, because the Bible does not list his mother and father and doesn't list descendants, just kind of drops him into the story, there's something unique about him. Verse 4, just imagine how great this man was, that even our great and honorable patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils. Compare him to the priests who serve in our temple, the descendants of Levi, who were given a commandment in the law of Moses to collect one-tenth of the income of the tribes of Israel. The priests took that tithe from their own people, even though they were descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who did not belong to the Levite ancestry, he collected a tenth part of Abraham's income. And although Abraham had received the promises, it was Melchizedek who blessed Abraham. In other words, this is weird. Like, Abraham's the man. You would expect other people to kind of pay homage to Abraham, but it was the other way around. Abraham did this to Melchizedek. Now, I don't have to tell you that it is the lesser who receives a blessing from the greater. In this case of the in the case of the priest descended from Levi, they're mortal men who received a tithe of one tenth. But the scripture records no death of Melchizedek, the one who received Abraham's tithe. I guess you could even say that Levi, who receives our tithes, originally paid tithes through Abraham because he was still unborn and only a part of his ancestor when Abraham met Melchizedek. If a perfect method of reconciling with God, that is a perfect priesthood, had been found in the sons of Levi, and this would be a priesthood that communicated God's law to the people, then why would the scriptures speak of another priest, a priest according to Melchizedek, 
instead of, say, from the order of Aaron? What would be the need for it? Well, it would reflect a new way of relating to God, because when there's a change in the priesthood, there must be a corresponding change in the law as well. We're talking about someone who comes from another tribe from which no member has ever served at God's altar. It's clear that Jesus, our Lord, descended from the tribe of Judah, but Moses never spoke about priests from that tribe. Doesn't it seem obvious? Jesus is a priest who resembles Melchizedek in so many ways. He's someone who has become a priest, not because of some requirement of human lineage, but because of the power of a life without end. Think resurrection, because of resurrection power. Remember, the psalmist says you're a priest forever in the honored order of Melchizedek. Well, because the earlier commandment was weak and did not reconcile us to God effectively, it was set aside. After all, the law could not make anyone or anything perfect. God has now introduced a new and better hope through which we may draw near to him, and he confirmed it by swearing to it. The Levite order of priests took took office without an oath, but this man Jesus became a priest through God's oath. The Eternal One has sworn an oath and cannot change his mind. You are a priest forever, referring to Jesus. So we can see that Jesus has become a guarantee of a new and better covenant. When we were doing communion and I read that short passage, I said I was going to bring up covenant again. This is the idea. The life of Jesus introduced a new covenant, a new way of reconciliation with God. Further, the prior priesthood of the sons of Levi has included many priests because death cut short their service. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he lives his resurrected life forever. From such a vantage, he is able to save those who approach God through him for all time because he will forever live to be their advocate in the presence of God. We're going to finish this morning on that verse, so I'm going to come back to that later. Verse 26, it's only fitting we should have a high priest who's devoted to God, blameless, pure, compassionate toward, but separate from sinners, and exalted by God to the highest place of honor. Unlike other high priests, he does not first need to make atonement every day for his own sins, and only then for his people's, because he already made atonement, reconciling us with God once and forever when he offered himself as a sacrifice, not for his sins, of course, but for ours. The law made imperfect men high priests, but after that law was given, God swore an oath that made his perfected son a high priest for all time. Chapter 8, verse 1. So let me sum up what we've covered so far, for there is much we have said. We have a high priest, a perfect priest who sits in the place of honor in the highest heavens at the right hand of the throne of the majestic one, a minister within the heavenly sanctuary set up by the Lord, not by human hands. As I have said, it is the role of every high priest to offer gifts and sacrifices to God, so clearly this priest of ours must have something to offer as well. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, because there's already priests who can offer gifts according to the law of Moses in a sanctuary that's a copy and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. We know this because God admonished Moses as he set up the tent for the Lord's sanctuary. Be sure you make everything according to the pattern I showed you on the mountain. But now Jesus has taken on a new and improved priestly ministry. And in that respect, he has made the mediator, he has been made the mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. Remember, if the first covenant had been able to reconcile everyone to God, there would be no reason for a second covenant. 
God found fault with the priest when he said through the prophet Jeremiah, Look, the time is coming when I will bring about a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of slavery in the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to that covenant. So the Eternal One says, I turned away from them. But when those days are over, I will make this kind of covenant with the people of Israel. I will put my laws on their minds and write them upon their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. In those days, they won't need to teach each other my ways or say to each other, know the eternal one. In those days, all will know me from the least to the greatest. I will be merciful when they fail and I will erase their sins and wicked acts out of my memory as they, though they never existed. Before I give the big finish of the final verse, I just want to make a note about the paragraph I just read. I sometimes hear people talk about this, and their conclusion is, we don't really need the Bible. God's just going to write things on my heart. Um, I don't even need to necessarily share with people, perhaps. We won't need to teach each other, it says. There's, under this new covenant, I don't need God's word. I've got everything written in my own heart. I just want to note that I don't think that does justice to the language of the passage. I've got several quotes. If you pick up my notes, you can go research this further. I just want to give you one from Matthew Henry, who explains the passage this way. God once wrote his laws to his people. Now he will write his laws in them. He will give them understanding to know and to believe his laws. In other words, it's not a different law. It's simply now going to become ingrained in us. He will give them memories to retain the law. He will give them hearts to love them, courage to profess them, power to put them into practice. This is the foundation of the covenant. And when this is laid, our duty will be done wisely, sincerely, readily, easily, resolutely, constantly, and with comfort. Uh, That's just a side note on that particular section. You're welcome to come to Message Plus and talk more about that if you'd like. All right. Chapter 8, verse 13, final verse of what we're reading. With the words, a new covenant, God made the first covenant old, and what is old and no longer effective will soon fade away completely. All right. First question, why Melchizedek? So Melchizedek, when you look at Jewish history, was a huge figure. Everybody talked about him. The rabbis constantly talked and wrote about Melchizedek. There was a Jewish historian named Philo who wrote about Melchizedek. And one of the reasons for this was Abraham was their greatest patriarch. I mean, Abraham's the man, like I said earlier. Everything goes back to Abraham. And Hebrews now is all about Jesus is greater than, greater than. We already covered specifically in Hebrews that Jesus is greater than Abraham. But this was a huge hurdle for the Jewish audience. Trying to envision someone greater than Abraham or even someone greater than Moses through whom the law came, this was hard work. And I don't really think we have an equivalent. I was trying to think of people in church history that we see somewhat as heroes that would play the same kind of role to us. So four big names came to mind. And if you're a fan of theology, these will be recognizable to you. If not, they might not be. That's okay. Um, Augustine, Aquinas, and then Calvin and Luther. Now, those names, they're, they're big names in the history of Christianity because a lot of what we believe today 
Uh, they helped us to understand and kind of formalize what the Bible has to say about lots of different things. They've been huge. But if someone would say to me, hey, there's someone greater than Augustine. Oh, okay. I believe that. You can give me anyone on that list. I would shrug my shoulders and go, that's fine. So maybe we have to go back to the apostles. Here's Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. If someone would say to me, do you know there's someone greater than Paul? Sure. I mean, Paul was amazing, but of course there's people better than Paul. I just, I've been thinking all week, I can't find an equivalent. To maybe use a shallow example, if someone would say to me, you know there was a better NBA player than Michael Jordan, I would punch them first. (laughs) But then I would go, okay, that's fine, that's fine. Um, You're wrong, but that's fine if there is someone greater. I, I don't think... I can't comprehend how big a deal this was to the original audience reading this, but just know Melchizedek being greater than Abraham, this is huge, huge. So why it mattered then? So once again, Hebrews has been saying, Jesus is greater than. I've got a list on the board. So far as we've gone through Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is constantly saying, you know, this person you admire or this thing you admire or whatever, do you understand Jesus is greater than all these things, and not by just a little bit. Jesus didn't kind of squeak into a first-place finish. Like, he's so much greater. Do you understand the significance of this? I wonder in some ways if the writer hasn't been building up to Melchizedek, because Melchizedek was such a huge figure in Jewish history. And his argument goes something like this, just to revisit now what we've read. So Melchizedek received a tithe from Abraham. So he's greater than Abraham. So now if Melchizedek has descendants, they're going to be greater than Abraham's descendants. So once again, we don't live in a culture where lineage is a sign that you've arrived in some fashion. We can see it around the world where you have courts and you still have kings and queens and princes and you're born into a family of royalty and there's something about your line that situates you in society in a particular place and might actually make people think that you're better just because of your lineage. So this is a big deal. If Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then the descendants of Melchizedek are greater than the descendants of Abraham. So the Levites or the priests, they come from Abraham. But the resurrection of Jesus has proved that Jesus is greater than he's in the line of Melchizedek. So once again, for us, we're like, line of Melchizedek, okay. For that audience, oh, oh, he's in that line. All right. The passage also establishes when the priesthood changes, the covenant changes, the law changes, which means the means of reconciliation to God changes. So now Jesus is the new and greatest high priest in a greater lineage. It is a new covenant. There is a new way that we will be reconciled to God. And in particular, we'll no longer need to offer sacrifices day after day. Jesus sacrificed for our sins once and for all when he offered himself. So everything changes. But there's more to it than that, because Melchizedek was also a king. Here was the problem with this. It's very clear in the Old Testament, especially when Israel was established as God's kingdom with God's people, you do not have people who are priest and king simultaneously. You can have people who are priest and prophet, like Samuel. 
You can have people who are king and prophet like David. But you can't, God is clear about this, you cannot have someone who is both priest and king. And here's why. The king is the enforcer. The king is the lawgiver. The king is the judge. The king is responsible for law and justice. But the priest is a friend, a counselor, a confidant. One who sympathizes with the people. They help people when they mess up. They're the ones reconciling lawbreakers with the one against whom they broke the law. I think I said that sentence right. So the king is law and justice. The priest is mercy. So think of our legal system today. If you have a judge in a courtroom, the judge's job is to make sure that the law is kept and that justice is done. But then we have defense attorneys, advocates, who seek to clear those accused of those particular crimes. In Israel, you did not mix those two things. If you were a king of justice, you had to be focused on justice. If you were a priest of mercy, you had to be focused on mercy. But here's Melchizedek, who was a king of righteousness and a king of peace. Melchizedek was both those things. So there is clearly, to this audience, there's something hugely important about Melchizedek. God told his people, none of you can handle this, in essence. You can't blend these things, but Melchizedek did. And now we have Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. See, the king represented God to the people. The priest represented the people to God. The king was a person of truth. The priest was a person of tears. Not my words. I got that great line from someone else. And you can pick up my notes and do some follow-up reading on that. Okay, so the Israelites didn't mess with this. When Saul tried to do it one time and gave a priestly offering before going into battle, Samuel shows up and says, dude, you blew it. Uh, Now you're done. God wants a king who's a man after his own heart. And the fact that Saul did that clearly revealed he was not. Uh, When Uzziah tried to burn temple and or burn incense in the temple, uh, he was struck with leprosy. You do not mix these two things. And yet Melchizedek was both, and now here's Jesus, who's the great high king and the great high priest. You see both these things, justice and mercy, perfectly and righteously combined in one person. And this, once again, to the audience of Hebrews, the original audience, uh, they're connecting this with prophecy, Let's go to Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. There's your kingly language. He will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. One day there will be a person who fully displays justice and fully displays mercy, who is able to represent God to the people and represent the people to God. And we see this in the cross, right? Where God's righteousness demands punishment for sin. And God in his mercy offers the means of reconciliation for us sinners. So the one who must punish sin to exercise holy justice took the punishment on himself in an act of holy mercy. The king is the priest. And this brings us to verse 25 of chapter 7. I want to land on this today for the rest of the time. He is able to save those who approach God through him for all time because he will forever live to be their advocate in the presence of God. 
So he's going to approach God through all time. He forever lives to be advocates for us in the presence of God. So a question I have is, what does this look like? What is Jesus advocating on our behalf? Let's go back to Scripture. We have at least two times where Jesus tells people, I prayed for you that this might happen. One is to Peter. This is Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. He says, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your strength may not fail, and that when you have turned again, you can strengthen your brothers. And then we read in John 17, beginning in verse 11, Jesus prays to God to protect us from the evil one and also to sanctify us. So I have five things I want to give us in the next ten minutes that Jesus, as priest and advocate, offers to us. So the first is salvation. This is Jesus as the priest. His death is a sacrifice for our life. It's us being rescued from the eternal penalty of sin and into life in the kingdom of God. This can't be overstated, right? We could talk about salvation every Sunday for the rest of our lives and not plumb into the depths of it. But just to be clear, God as righteous judge must judge our sin. Must judge our sin. But God, through Jesus as high priest, takes that judgment upon himself and offers us reconciliation with God. That is the greatest gift in the universe. I wasn't right when I said the best gift you can give me for my birthday is to show up for game night with bacon. That is number two. The best gift has already been given to me. Salvation. I don't have to pay the eternal consequences of my sin. That's incredible. Incredible. But what does Jesus do for advocate? And now I'm going back to these verses I just read. Number one, protection from the evil one. This is spiritual warfare on our behalf. Uh, He said to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. We don't sift wheat anymore. That is a winnowing process. They knew, uh, Peter knew what Jesus was talking about, like Satan is going to go through your life with a fine-toothed comb. He just wants to break you down to the smallest, I mean, (sighs) Satan desires to sift you like wheat. Uh, My assumption is, this is Satan's desire for all who love God, to undo us to beat us down, to attack us, to tear us apart, to knock us out of the race, whatever phrase you want to use, that that is the desire of evil and the supernatural even evil agents in our life. If this is new language to you, just know Christianity is a dualistic worldview. That means there's a physical world and there's a spiritual world. There's two parts, and that spiritual world is real. And it's hungry. It's like a roaring lion coming after us. Crouching by our door, says Genesis. Wants to, wants to trick us and waylay us, right? Evil is a real thing. One of the things Jesus does is advocate for us. That we'll be protected from the evil one. Can I just encourage you, in your prayer life, as you are encountering hard things in your life, Whatever those situations may be, 
I think um, counsel from wise Christians is good. There's something about learning self-disciplines that can be good if you're dealing with issues of sin. There's something about good Christian counseling that can help us walk into things and deal with things. There's a lot of things kind of within our grasp that we can do. We can invest sweat equity into our lives. But you know who fights for us on a spiritual level is Jesus. As the supernatural world comes against us, Jesus is our advocate. I pray for this church. And when I pray for this church, one of my prayers is, Oh God, if the evil one is coming against our church and people in our church, and I'm sure he is, I pray for the power of your blood and the power of your name to keep us safe. Because I can't do anything about it in my power. You can't do anything about it in your power, but Jesus sure can. So I'm calling on his name to fight those battles for us. Now, those other battles, and we'll see here, Jesus is helping us with everything. When we're his children, he's helping us with everything. Uh, but there's some battles in which there, there's some things we bring kind of and, and uh, fight with Jesus. I'm going to get in trouble for that language. There's just, we invest in certain ways, and there's some things God does for us. Salvation is one of those clearly, but protection from the evil one, Jesus is on our behalf. Next is sanctification. I'm going to go back to Dan's definition last week. This maturity and growth through obedience. Jesus is petitioning for us. He's our advocate. What does that mean? He's helping us. Because obedience is hard. I just mentioned things we can do in our life. All right, that's part of a sanctification process. But once again, we are not alone. We're not doing this on our own power. Jesus is with us. He's praying for us. He's petitioning for us. He's advocating for us in the presence of God. We're not alone. So even these situations where we're alive, we're like, man, my willpower is weak. I just have these patterns I keep falling back into again and again. Uh, All right, so dear God, help me with this. I need your sanctification. He prays that God will sanctify us. He's not going to leave us alone. If he calls us to do this, he will help us to do this. Next, he strengthens our faith. He prays, I should say, that our faith will be strengthened. This is nice to know. Because I don't know about you, but I pray for my faith to be strengthened. And by faith, I I don't mean like going like this and trying harder to be faithful. I'm talking about the practical working out of, think trust. God, I trust your word. I trust that your way is the right way. Hard for me to trust sometimes, but I do it. Okay, that, that's faith. That's a walking out of faith. It's being in a circumstance and, be, and being overwhelmed and going, okay, do I believe that Jesus is here, that he's near? He's sovereign in this situation? He's with me? Do I believe all these things? Can I rest? Can I rest in this moment? And and it's good to know that it's not just us praying for God to help us. Jesus is interceding on our behalf. He's praying that our faith may not fail. And then finally, an ability to strengthen others. Uh, I think this is a neat one because we often talk about the desire for God to work in our lives, understandably. But 
Here he says to Peter, uh, I pray that your strength may not fail so that when you have turned again, you can strengthen your brothers. So it's not just about us. That one of the reasons we have Jesus who intercedes on our behalf, who is an advocate for us, who is working in our lives, is not just for our good. It's for the good of everyone around us. Who in my life is the person who most directly benefits as God works in my life through Jesus? Other than, I mean, I do. After that, who is most blessed by God's work in my life? Any guesses? Yeah, Sheila. Absolutely. God's not working in me just for me. God, in his mercy for Sheila, (laughs) is working in me. Right? So it's not just about me. This is one way we often use the phrase here, God does things for our good and for his glory. This is, this is part of where his glory comes into play. My wife knows that without Jesus, without Jesus, that's the proper noise to attach to her thoughts about Anthony. With Jesus, wild celebration on her behalf. Now, you understand what I'm saying, Right? My wife benefits. My boys benefit from Jesus' work in my life. You benefit from Jesus' work in my life. And I benefit from Jesus' work in yours. As does your family, as does your friends, as does your neighbor who needs to see Jesus. So one thing that strikes me about this passage on Melchizedek, because it's still like, just because... We're not part of that original audience that understood what a big deal was. We're we're trying hard to walk in first century shoes, and that can be a difficult thing to do. What stands out to me about this passage is this role Jesus plays as both king and priest. That he is our judge and he is our savior. He is the one who understands righteousness and holiness and the stench of sin in the nostrils of God. But he's also the one who understands uh, how we need a Savior and offers himself for us. That's incredible. That's incredible. And then he doesn't just sit back and go, well, I saved you. Good luck. He's in our lives, active, living, moving, making something of ourselves we could never make of ourselves, fighting battles we could never fight. A gracious What an astonishing gift it is to be invited to live in the kingdom of God. Now, my final thought. I'm envisioning what our church community is like when we're a people who are changed like this. I mean, just take a moment to think. So this starts with our families, right? And as we kind of expand what happens with God at work in our life and how it permeates the world. God's justice and mercy permeates the world through us. Just kind of this ever-widening thing. I think many of us, we long for a place that feels like home. We long for a place where we can be ourselves, where we are known and loved, fully known and fully loved, and where we can enter into relationships that are healthy and strong and good and might be hard at times, but we know that repentance and forgiveness is a thing and 
all these types of things. This is what Jesus offers us. This is what he offers his church body, this community, a community transformed by Jesus like this, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Oh, man, that's just thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I'm grateful for Jesus, our priest, our advocate. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.